What is good, everybody? It is Wednesday. This is Michael Zakhan, founder and creator of Our Future. I'm a 20-year-old college kid who hosts the business podcast for young people, where you will hear from the brightest minds in business to get career advice and exclusive industry insights multiple times a week. Super psyched to be joining you guys today after almost five days without an episode. Definitely the longest I've gone without a pod drop, but we are back. I'm on the mic, cooking up in the kitchen, ready to bring you guys another incredible interview. Just want to make a quick announcement about our newsletter, which just surpassed 1,200 opens this weekend. I put a ton of work into it, turning the insights I glean through this podcast into a written format. I promise you will learn tons of new stuff every time you read our Sunday newsletter. So subscribe at ourfuturehq.com. And just one final note, I am currently recording this intro at 7 p.m. here in California. We do not yet know the result of this election. And if you were listening this morning, I am behind you, but I do hope you cast your vote yesterday to have a say in our future. My next guest is Dave Habiger. He has led a truly legendary adventure in the business world. He is currently the president and CEO of JD Power, the multi-billion dollar consumer insights machine that powers the auto industry, and he is the former CEO and president of entertainment tech company Sonic Solutions. He led that ship from 1993 to 2010. Dave is the recipient of numerous awards, including the EY Entrepreneur of the Year and even won an Emmy Award for his technical contributions. Habiger serves on numerous boards, including Grubhub and the Chicago Federal Reserve. It was truly an honor to interview him, and this all began when I approached Dave after I watched him give a speech at my school. If someone inspires you, go talk to them. Networking is never for nothing. Did I know I would start a podcast months after I met Dave and have him on the show? No. But I went up and introduced myself because I was inspired by him. So I recommend everybody do the same. Without further ado, enjoy my interview with Dave Habiger. You, when you were my age, Dave, you were interested in making documentaries. And when we think about documentaries like back in the 90s and to now, like, you know, now we're looking at like Tiger King. But back then, what was the what was the doc that inspired you? Like, why did you want to go make independent films? Um, not sure there was uh, inspiration. And in, I liked watching them. So, you know, Earl Morris, there's plenty of there's plenty of good ones out there that uh, stand up to Tiger King. But I wasn't I don't know. I was inspired. I, I like the uh, the gear um, and I like the audio and I think that was the more of the appeal I'm not sure I was in, uh, I wasn't a good storyteller and I wasn't necessarily uh, you know waking up every morning going boy I can't wait to tell great movie stories and that that was just a video that was the chip to the dip I just used that was the you know that was the Dorito that was used to get to the cheese dip cheese dip was the audio and video and I think the business part of it that there's a entrepreneurial component to a documentary you've got to got to start calling people and similar to what you do, right? You got to convince someone who's, um, you don't know to be willing to talk and you've got to figure out how to pay for it. You got to get to your buddies to agree to carry a camera for a free bag of lunch. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a little mini business. I think that was a little bit more appealing than, uh, than, you know, my uh, desire to have some great uh, story to tell. And for you, it was the it was the cost, right? It was the cost of the equipment. It was too high. President CEO of, of Sonic Solutions there in the '90s. I guess you were working with some of the biggest studios in the world to essentially go from Hollywood to home. Back then, we were we were the plumbers, right? So if you're a a studio, um, 
you ultimately, I mean, studios, to take a step back, studios are generally, they think of them as um, lawyers, bankers, they're essentially putting funding together. I mean, it's almost like venture capital, right? You, you literally pull together uh, a thousand people to, to make something. And those, they're all independent contractors, right? I mean, all the way down from the people that deliver the food to the person who makes the costume to the person who, you know, applies the makeup. Um, so the studio doesn't have a, you know, it's not like 1940. They don't actually own many assets, uh, but they, they put together an idea and they pull together all these people. And it's, it's an interesting process, right? It's very creative. You're building a little mini company and then you're disbanding six, nine months, a year later. So our role was as the tools provider, a studio wants to, you know, reach, you know, they want things to look good, sound good, and digital tools are starting to look better and sound better. And so they'd work with you on that. They want distribution. So they want to be able to, to um, in on my case, DVDs. So they, you know, we were, when I started Sonic, we were doing, you know, DVDs were just starting the, the idea was being born. And, you know, studios liked the idea because that was better than VHS. And to some degree, it meant people were going to rebuy uh, the same movie they already had on VHS. Maybe they'd buy again. So it's a good way to monetize their their asset. Um, you had to pull together the CE manufacturers, Sony and Toshiba, and folks who had to build the physical hardware to make it work and the discs. And then people like us who were software folks who understood how all that had to go together. So you you know you pull together a group of people, and everyone had an incentive. You know, we we would sell tools and products and eventually those would go from the professional world to the consumer space uh, and they did you know you what was a hundred thousand uh, dollar piece of software and hardware to make a dvd i don't know six seven years later we were selling at walmart in the box you know for 50 bucks uh, it was probably better than the you know hundred thousand dollar product because time had marched on and technology got better right classic example of technology being extremely expensive and becoming cheaper, just like electric cars, like we just talked about. Uh, you know, at the start of this convo, you, we, we talked about you being, you know, maybe 51% Tim Wright, you know, a, a majority of the time. You were definitely right about video on demand and over the top and streaming. My 51% right on things? That's my wife. Don't look find out real quick. No. No? Apparently I'm not 51%. No. Dang, dang. 30 We'll go with 30. Oh, okay. Hopefully you're not navigating in that case. But um, <laughs> so, so Sonic had a, had a stake in delivering 95% of like DVDs, but was there was this salivation amongst the studios to like not be burning content onto a DVD and just delivering it over the internet, right? They, were, they, were, they wanted that. It was cost yeah. saving. Um, some did, some didn't. So there was parts of the organization, you know, if you took a studio that um, – you know, Warner Brothers had a little group that job was to kind of be promoting the idea of, of streaming or, do, you know, moving from physical uh, discs or cable to streaming. 90% of the organization probably, you know, fought that for a while uh, because it, it disrupted the business. Um, but eventually, yeah, the, as the technology came around and people figured out how to monetize it. But back then there was all sorts of fears about music piracy and Napster. Napster and yeah. uh, at some point, you know, there, we ended up at, at Sonic owning Napster or piece of it through an acquisition. And oh yeah, Sean Parker, was, you meet with Sean Parker? The, no, no, no. We Sean was out of them, and by the time we had some 
ownership of the asset. It was at the behest of the studios. The studios wanted it. There, there were codecs and technology that was useful. And so we were always the, uh, you know, we, we were worked closely with the studio. So they basically we teed it up for us to buy some of the, some of the uh, remaining assets and uh, use those when, you know, for, uh, for DVD or sorry, for streaming. But yeah, in general, the studios tend to fight the new technology at first and uh, they, they eventually got there around the same time the technology was starting to work. So I 15 years worth of people trying to do streaming of some sort yeah. before you actually had real, real product. You were on, you're on the board of, of Grubhub. We couldn't cover everything on your resume in 30 minutes. That would be impossible. What are your insights on kind of the, the way that that market's shaken out for food delivery? I mean, first off, huge essential service for, for COVID-19, uh, but also a yeah. cutthroat battle. I mean, being on the board of Grubhub, like, you've been privy to all these conversations. Can you capture kind of the essence of, of how people in the industry are thinking about the future of it as well? At some point, are we not just, you know, Grubhub or anyone else? Uh, I mean, it's, it's an interesting point in time in that who, who's actually employed and who is, I think it really is, is one of the bigger questions that, that you know, we'll deal with over the next several years for everything from food delivery to, uh, you know, the entire gig economy, and I think that's 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 an interesting one to watch. I don't have any great insight on that other than it's going to be a regulatory, uh, you know, discussion. And uh, the idea that uh, you know the way it affects transportation, I'm intrigued with. You know, I have a lot of uh, history in transportation. I think there's a uh, there's an exercise in what's the most efficient way to move things around should we do we have the centralized location where everyone goes to do you have dark kitchens for example i think you'll see a lot more dark kitchens and uh you know restaurants that literally no one ever goes into uh, there's grocery stores i've seen that are doing similar things where it's essentially a grocery store but it's only designed for you know amazon delivery i think it's early innings still by the way i don't know you know food delivery has been around for a long time but how you do it efficiently how you take care of customer i mean that was grubhub's uh strength. I mean, they did a really good job of, of uh, managing and, and customer expectations. They did a great job with the restaurants and um, you know, it'll be, be a fun one to watch. Definitely. And you have a pretty dang good seat to, to watch that play out. Let's talk about your day job, which is being uh, the CEO of JD Power, CEO of JD Power, appointed in 2018. What is unique and exciting about JD Power? What, what attracted you to, to that post? Yeah, you know, I've always liked cars. That was that was part of it, I must admit. But um, it, the pattern I've seen most of the, you know the last you know four or five companies I've run have been all uh, analog businesses moving to digital or, or big disruption in this space. And so I tend to do better when there's a disruptive element. And the auto industry, I was trying to find a way to participate in what I think is an upcoming disruption. Time will tell, but um, you know the electrification is clearly going to disrupt the space. The way people buy cars uh, is going to change, and ride sharing clearly is changing uh, uh, the landscape. So that, to me, said, all right, here's this trillion-dollar industry that's going to get flipped upside down, and um, you know that's that's tends to be where I, I I do do well. And so the appeal of JD Power and, uh, and this case was that it's a very 
you know, it's a trusted brand with consumers, but it's also a 50-year-old company that's extremely trusted with the auto manufacturers and dealer channel. So, um, and it's ultimately data business. So we measure, um, you know, what cars were sold today, you know, um, all the VINs and descriptions on what is on a car. Uh, so, for example, you know, there's no database that you can just go look up uh, what a, what's exactly on the new, F, you know, you got a two-year-old truck. Uh, if you're buying it at auction, does it have the mirrors that have the computer in it? And little turn signal, which makes those mirrors worth about two grand at retail or at, at, at a salvage yard, or does it have a standard mirror, which makes it worth about fifty bucks? Uh, the VIN describes, you know, it's the DNA of a vehicle, and so JD Power manages mm-hmm. and tracks and measures all that. Uh, so it's a, it's an interesting data business, and um, you know, it's 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 a good time to be in that industry. So I think. what what is JD Power doing about? The electric revolution. How are you guys going to have a stake in the future of transportation? We're involved in pretty much all aspects of you know the um, the auto industry, and, and electric is is not a whole lot, surprisingly, not a lot different, frankly, than than an internal combustion engine. So, if anything, it's just easier to build an electric car. So it's it's complexity, older technology. It's it's so what you end up with is are you have a less complex vehicle. So um, what's the impact on the industry when you do that? Uh, you know, our, our involvement tends to be uh, on the market research side, um, behavioral use and how people uh, use those cars. On the data side of our business, we tend to, to pack, uh, build the VIN. You know, if you wreck a, uh, your electric vehicle or standard vehicle, what's, what's, the, what's the value of that car? So the yeah. residual value. I was thinking, what about how these consumer ratings and the idea of a car will change in that people will rate and define cars differently? And, and it'll be interesting to see on, on JD Power how how these cars are, are ranked differently than, than uh, you know, ICE cars. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, we um, part of our business is, is a ranking business. It's a very small part. But that's not, uh, I always have to explain to people, we're the opposite of Consumer Reports, where you know, Consumer Reports goes out and gets 10 computers and 10 experts on computers, and they come up with their opinion on what they think the best computer is. Uh, we have no opinion. We never mm-hmm. provide an opinion on any of that. What we do is benchmark uh, based on consumer uh, response and consumer market research. So we're essentially... Uh, creating a, a benchmark and a data set and then measuring against it. So we don't um, ultimately to voice the customer. What does the customer think about a particular uh, segment or market or vehicle? And um, I, I guess my guess is that over time, you know, we're going to see, you know, more and more electric vehicles because consumers like them. I mean, that's the, in a nutshell, the, there's a reason why billions of dollars are being invested by, you know, every auto manufacturer on the planet. Um, in, around electrification because it's a, you know it's an efficient way to get around. It's a it's a pleasant driving experience and tends to have uh, less complexity and fewer things to break. What do you think your biggest lesson in business was from you know running Sonic all the way to to its IPO and then eventual sale for for uh, you know nearly a billion dollars? Probably that uh, you're number one, not as smart as you think you are. On the other hand, 
you know, everyone else isn't that much smarter either. I, I remember being, you know, I was lucky enough to be in a, in a fast growing company at a young age and idolizing certain figures in the industry and you eventually meet them and you go, you know, they're not much different than my, uh, my buddy Bobby or the people I grew up with. They're, they're just normal people. And it, that's freeing at some point because you realize there isn't some magic gift or anything else. There's, there's a lot. Uh, hard work, and um, I think from a business perspective, the sooner you realize. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give it defer back to you. I, I gave a speech at Michigan, University of Michigan, and you came up afterwards, and and you know had some questions, and then that, you know pestered me to do an interview, and you know that's that's it. That literally is what it comes down to. At some point, you realize you've probably done enough of these and met enough people that you go, wait a second, I'm you know Michael's not any. Uh, uh, smarter or dumber than anyone else and you you know you go out and do it so i, I don't know i think it's just it's not a there's no secret uh, to some degree it is luck that that was my revelation in my early 20s was don't really know what i'm doing ask a lot of questions uh be willing to change my opinion and uh that still holds true ladies and gentlemen that was an incredible interview with dave habiger he's an extremely influential business leader and the current ceo of jd power Hope everything last night turned out well, and as always, stay frosty. Be with you guys soon.